Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bruce Gellerman. By paying to protect forests abroad, the United States could help meet its greenhouse gas goals at home. But not all forests or all trees are created equal. Forests in tropical regions store four times the carbon of a tree plantation. So when you destroy a natural forest and replace it with a tree plantation, you have just decimated the ability of that land to store carbon. Also, just how green is the new pick for the Supreme Court? A look at her record. And birds hear much more in a bird song than we do, and that has one ornithologist singing the blues. Oh, to be a hermit thrush for a day, to hear as they hear. It's the only way we'll really understand what they're doing. They whistle while we work. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. And I'm Steve Kerwood. The Waxman-Markey climate change bill, now moving through Congress, aims to reduce the level of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. by 17 percent compared to 2005. But there's another part of the bill that could cut emissions by another 10 percent or more. It's called avoided deforestation, and it involves paying developing countries to keep their carbon-sequestering forests standing. Avoided deforestation is a key part of the U.N. climate negotiations that are resuming in early June in Germany. Joining us now is Alden Meyer. He's Director of Strategy and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Welcome, Alden. Good to be with you, Steve. So tell me, what could avoided deforestation in other countries do for U.S. plans to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? I mean, just how big a deal is this? Well, it's a very big deal. Uh, Deforestation globally accounts for about 20% of worldwide CO2 emissions, carbon dioxide emissions. That's roughly equivalent to the total emissions of the U.S. or the total emissions of China. And it's more than the total emissions from all the vehicles, planes, buses, trains, and ships in the world. So it's a big deal. Uh, What is happening in the U.S. is the Waxman-Markey bill, which is now moving through the House, uh, includes a set-aside of 5% of the allowances for emissions. Uh, We estimate that that would roughly be equivalent to $3 billion a year in 2012 when the law takes effect, ramping up to about $5 billion a year by 2020. And estimates are that for roughly $20 billion a year, you could probably cut that rate of deforestation in half. So the U.S. uh, contribution of $5 billion would go part of the way towards reducing deforestation over the next decade. In terms of emissions, uh, the estimates are that this could result in emission reductions equivalent to about 10% of U.S. current emissions. So coming up in Bonn, Germany in June, uh, the world continues to talk about how to update the Kyoto Protocol. So how might the U.S. plans to pay for avoided deforestation uh, in developing countries help our negotiating position there? Well, I mean, obviously, one of the big issues of contention uh, among many in this process 
is how ambitious the U.S. domestic target is. Most of the world would like to see us do substantially more than what the president committed to during the campaign or the target that's in the Waxman-Markey bill, which would reduce emissions about 17% below current levels or a little about 4% below what our emissions were in 1990, which is the benchmark used in both the Rio Treaty and the Kyoto Protocol. Parse that out for me a little bit more, Aldenmeyer. How far away are we in terms of numbers from what uh, other countries around the world would like to see? Well, the benchmark that's been talked about since the Bali negotiations uh, two years ago is that industrialized countries as a whole, that's Europe, Japan, the U.S., Russia, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, etc., Uh, should be shooting to reduce their collective emissions by 25 to 40 percent below 1990 levels. The Waxman-Markey bill gets us uh, domestically to about 4 percent below 1990 levels. If you add in this uh, deforestation uh, reduction funding that's part of the bill, it gets you to roughly 16 percent below 1990 levels. That doesn't get us uh, fully into the range, but this is a significant achievement to have this provision in Waxman-Markey, which adds to the global uh, lift towards meeting the reductions we need to avoid the worst impacts of global warming. Alden, to what extent can we buy our way out of making painful domestic emissions reductions? Well, I don't think this is is seen as buying our way out. Uh, Actually, the uh, funding for uh, uh, reducing deforestation would not be an offset or a credit against our domestic uh, reductions. It would not make them any easier. It would be on top of, which is one of the advantages of it in terms of the global negotiations. The other point to make here is, of course, uh, we disagree with the whole premise that it's painful and sacrifice and harmful to make reductions in home. In fact, our analysis uh, released uh, last month and testimony before the House Energy and Commerce Committee showed that you could get uh, significantly deeper reductions in emissions domestically than the current Waxman-Markey bill calls for at net savings to American consumers of $900 per household through reduced energy bills. So this whole notion that it has to be painful to use energy more efficiently to deploy cleaner resources like renewables, uh, we disagree with. This might be a good deal for the U.S., but what about the uh, developing countries that will be paying to do these uh, reductions in terms of avoiding deforestation? Well, it actually helps them as well because these funds will be used to provide uh, alternative uh, livelihoods and compensation to people that now uh, make their living by cutting down the rainforests. In many cases, they would like to preserve the rainforest for future use and all the benefits they provide, particularly to indigenous people and others. But uh, economics are are forcing them uh, to clear the land, uh, burn down the rainforest, clear it for agriculture or for timber harvesting. This would provide an alternative income stream to recognize the value that these rainforests have in taking carbon up out of the atmosphere and storing it. It's basically ecological services, if you will, which right now they're getting no compensation for. So if we can get uh, the rest of the world, the other industrialized countries, to join uh, with the U.S., with countries like Norway that have already committed substantial money for this, uh, this will actually be helping these countries get on a more sustainable uh, development path. President Obama came into office uh, pledging really to lead on climate change. How does this plan from the Democrats uh, bolster or or weaken that claim? Well, I think it it helps uh, that claim, Steve, in the the sense that it shows that he has uh, at least part of Congress behind him going into this negotiating meeting in Bonn in, in June. 
Uh, he's gotten across the first hurdle uh, Waxman and Markey have by getting this out of the Energy and Commerce Committee in the House. Uh, obviously, it still needs to go through the full House of Representatives and then probably the toughest hurdle of all, getting 60 votes on the Senate floor to be able to pass the Senate and go to the president's desk. Of course, when you get to the, the substance of the bill, uh, I think the world would still like to see a higher level of ambition uh, on the U.S. domestic target, and you'll see uh, the administration continue to be pressed for that by the Europeans, the Japanese, the Chinese, and others. But it's sort of a, a demonstration of good faith that the president at least has his own party uh, and actually one Republican uh, on the committee, uh, Mary Bono, from California, uh, going along with this. So that's it's a, it's a down payment. I think it gives them some credibility going into this next negotiation. Alden Meyer is Director of Strategy and Policy for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Alden, thanks so much for your time. Good to be with you, Steve. While preserving forests holds great promise for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, not all forests are created equal. There are natural forests, which are home to a variety of trees, plants, and animal life. Then there are tree plantations, where a single type of tree is grown for its commercial value. Scientists are now experimenting with tree plantations, manipulating and modifying the genes of saplings that grow in these monocultures. And that's a problem, says Ann Peterman. She's executive director of the Global Justice Ecology Project. One of the main trees that they're genetically engineering is eucalyptus, um, but they're also genetically engineering poplars and pines. So those three species are pretty much the three main forestry trees that they're genetically engineering. And they're mainly doing it either for pulp and paper, for cellulosic fuel, um, in other words, biofuels made out of trees, or um, for timber, um, in the case of some of the pine. So they're genetically modifying them to enhance some of the traits. Uh, in the case of timber, they want, you know, straighter trees or less branches, or, you know, if they could grow two-by-fours, that would make them very happy. Um, or... In the case of paper, they want to actually create trees that have less lignin. Lignin is the structure in a tree that makes it strong, that protects it against insects, disease, fungus, etc., but makes it very hard to make paper or fuel. So if they have low lignin trees, they can more easily process them, they say, into paper or fuel. When you say they, you're talking about companies. Right. I'm talking about the paper industry, the biofuels industry, etc., What's the problem? I mean, they're saying we need to be more sustainable. We need to grow sustainable products, uh, provide for an ever-expanding population, and this is good. Their argument is that this will grow more wood on less land. Less forests will be cut down because we can concentrate the amount of timber that we're growing on a piece of land. But as we've seen with traditional plantations that are already developed all over the world, they do not protect forests they destroy forests, and the reason is because plantations are worth more money than natural forests. They can get more timber out of them, or they can get a specific kind of timber out of them, and in a natural forest, they can't do that, so it's worth more money. So what you're saying is it's a driver of deforestation. Exactly. They would go in and they would deforest a natural rainforest or a tropical forest, and then plant these plantation forests. Exactly, and you see that in Brazil. They've pretty much decimated the Mata Atlantica forest ecosystem in Brazil to replace them with eucalyptus plantations. Now they're talking about going into the Amazon and replacing parts of the Amazon with eucalyptus plantations. So yes, uh, tree plantations have been a huge driver of deforestation all over the world. But a tree is a tree is a tree. I mean, if you've cut down a tree and now you're planting genetically modified eucalyptus, in terms of carbon, is there a difference? 
There is, actually. There's a huge difference. And uh, it's not just, of course, the carbon storage, but the biodiversity, um, you know, the ability of forests to sustain populations, human populations, in a way that plantations can't. But getting back to the carbon issue, forests in tropical regions store four times the carbon of a tree plantation. So when you destroy a natural forest and replace it with a tree plantation, you have just decimated the ability of that land to store carbon. Clearly, that's going to have impacts on the, on the climate, not to mention the actual act of deforestation itself has huge carbon emissions. Uh, you know, studies have shown that at the very least, 20% of annual carbon emissions come from deforestation, and more recent studies are saying that it's probably a considerably more than that. In Brazil, they are planning to count uh, plantation trees as, as forest. They do in many parts of the world. The UN allows plantations to be considered as forest. It's just, it's an incredibly bad definition of forest that the UN uses that allows this to happen, and that desperately needs to be changed. In Brazil, they call tree plantations green deserts because they're so destructive and because they are basically devoid of any other species except the monoculture of that tree. And where on the planet is the number one place where they're planting genetically engineered trees? China, at this point. China's the only place in the world where they have commercially released genetically engineered trees at this point. The U.S. is in the process of trying to figure out if they want to, them to be legal here. Brazil is in a similar process. They're moving forward with it. But China is the only place where they actually have commercial plantations. Ann Peterman coordinates work on genetic trees for the Global Forest Coalition, and directs the Global Justice Ecology Project. Coming up, big oil companies face environmental justice lawsuits around the world. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Three of the world's biggest oil companies are currently battling environmental human rights lawsuits. The ExxonMobil case involves Indonesia, the Chevron-Texaco suit is in Ecuador, and the Shell case involves Nigeria. That case is about to go on trial in a New York federal court. The relatives of author Ken Sarawiwa and other activists allege Shell conspired with the Nigerian government to falsely accuse and execute Sarawiwa and eight of his colleagues. Dinah Shelton is a professor of international law at the George Washington University and uh, joins us now. Welcome. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Professor Shelton, what's Shell's defense to charges of collusion with the Nigerian government? Well, Shell is saying that they had no deal, that they were simply conducting their own activities. They were not responsible for what the government did and that they had asked the government to grant clemency to Sarawiwa. And the family says that they can prove that Shell's Nigerian subsidiary director met with Sarawiwa's brother and offered freedom in return to an end to the opposition to Shell's activities. So all of this is evidence that will have to be litigated in the trial. Why are they trying this case uh, in New York? Well, they're trying it in New York because, of course, Shell is in New York, and the very first United States Congress in 1789 passed a statute allowing aliens to come to the United States and sue defendants found here for violations of treaties to which the U.S. is a party or violations of international law more generally. 
Now, there are other uh, substantial uh, oil lawsuits that are going on right now. Uh, Both Ecuador and Indonesia uh, have some large cases in the works. Chevron is being sued for $27 billion for polluting the jungle. I gather that case actually has left the United States and and is in Ecuador now. So... The case spent about 14 years in U.S. courts with uh, first Texaco and later Chevron, arguing that it should be in the Ecuadorian courts. And now they're trying to argue their way out of the Ecuadorian courts. So there doesn't seem to be a forum they really like. Why do they say that uh, they shouldn't be in court in Ecuador if that's what they argued before? Well, the government has changed. Um, Originally, when the case was filed in New York, the president of Ecuador came in and sought to have the case dismissed, saying that this would be very harmful to Ecuadorian interests. The government has since changed. The government now is more concerned with environmental protection. One of the reasons why these cases often end up in U.S. courts is that the domestic courts in the foreign countries are not always strong institutions, and the judges may follow the prevailing political opinion within the country. You've spent some time in Ecuador and seen some of the polluted areas. How bad is it? Well, the pollution isn't always visible because it's primarily in the water system. But you do see, as you go along areas where the oil company activities have occurred, that there is a sheen on the water. The water looks like oil. It doesn't look like pure water. And this is in an area, a rainforest, where there are inundations on a daily basis, and yet it is not enough to sweep away the oil. Now, in Indonesia, ExxonMobil is being sued by some villagers in Aceh for human rights violations uh, allegedly committed by soldiers guarding a natural gas plant. Um, What exactly are the allegations in that case? Well, they're very similar in many ways to the Ken Sarawiwa case that in this instance, the company was directly hiring the military to protect their interests there with the result that there were what in other countries might be called ethnic cleansing, that there has been uh, there have been killings, there have been burnings of villages. It's very similar to the Nigerian case in respect of the type of violence and abuses that are alleged. What does it mean that, that all this is happening now? What, what kind of signal is it that we may be at some new level of accountability for international companies? Well, I, I think it's It really is a break from traditional human rights law, which focused on strong, repressive governments. The whole paradigm of of human rights violations was Hitler. And human rights law was designed to prevent types of massive human rights violations from occurring again through strong governments. In all three of the cases that you mentioned and many of the other corporate responsibility cases, There are very good laws in place in the states where these companies are acting, but those laws are not enforced. The institutions are weak. The policing is weak. There may be rampant corruption, as there was in Nigeria under the Abache government. And the consequence is that individuals are finding themselves victims of violations by a conspiracy, if you will, or a joint venture between governments and powerful multinational companies. You recently testified in front of Congress about these cases, and I know at one point you were asked why we should care, why the United States and the Congress should care um, about the abuses that are alleged in these cases. Uh, What was your answer? 
Well, my answer is that when companies are linked to abusive regimes, they're engaged in murder, they're engaged in destructions of property and whole entire cultures, it reflects back on the United States. So that's one reason. A second reason is because people whose rights are violated, who are no longer able to live in their own environment because it has been destroyed, are going to move elsewhere. And we are going to see more and more environmental refugees as well as human rights refugees if this conduct continues. Thirdly, in the long run, the corporations are going to find themselves in enormous difficulty because the people turn to violence and the corporations have seen hostages being taken. They've seen violence directed against them. So it's in their interest as well, not to mention the fact that it's the law. Dana Shelton is a professor of international law at the George Washington University Law School. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. In choosing Judge Sonia Sotomayor for the nation's highest court, President Obama selected a legal scholar with roots in Puerto Rican culture. Judge Sotomayor grew up in the New York City barrio of the Bronx and, of course, is a lifelong Yankees fan. She excelled at Princeton and Yale and has been a U.S. District Court judge for 17 years. In that time, she's ruled on a number of environmental cases, and Living on Earth's Ingrid Lebet looks at her decisions. The best-known environmental decision by Judge Sotomayor is a case about power plants that are located along rivers and the damage they cause to aquatic life through their giant water intakes. In 2007, river keepers around the country challenged an environmental protection agency rule on how power plants upgrade their intakes to protect fish. EPA had allowed plant operators to use cost-benefit analyses in making the equipment selection. In other words, they could choose the less expensive of two technologies, even if that meant fewer fish would be saved. Judge Sotomayor's opinion is seen as siding with environmentalists. She wrote that since the Clean Water Act requires the best available technology, that doesn't leave room for a cost-benefit analysis. Some legal scholars say she was reading the clear language of the law, but just a few weeks ago, her decision was overturned by the Supreme Court in an opinion by Justice Scalia, who found nothing in the law that prohibits balancing benefit against cost. Another opinion authored by Judge Sotomayor took a relatively unsympathetic view of a woman whose husband had worked aboard oil tanker ships and died at the age of 39 from squamous cell skin cancer. The woman alleged his cancer was caused by exposure to benzene and hydrocarbons aboard ship. Sotomayor upheld the lower court that dismissed the suit. Judge Sotomayor took part in a decision in 2005 that appears sympathetic to owners who lose their property through eminent domain for urban renewal. The panel of three judges said the village of Porchester, New York, needed to do more to inform a property owner about public meetings and the appeals process for the taking of his property. There are a number of influences that may have helped shape Judge Sotomayor. Except for the period she spent on the leafy campuses of Princeton and Yale, she's lived in urban New York, first in the Bronx, now in lower Manhattan. 
Her mother worked as a nurse in a methadone clinic, which could give the judge a deep understanding of drug addiction. Heroin has been particularly devastating in the Puerto Rican community. And as a lawyer in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, she prosecuted assault, robbery, and police brutality cases. Then she went on to practice intellectual property law. There's much attention to Sonia Sotomayor as a woman and a proud New Yorican. But if she's confirmed, her education and work experience are likely to be factors at least as strong in deciding environmental questions that might reach the Supreme Court in the coming years, such as whether a dry riverbed constitutes a river, or how to limit industrial emissions in the hope of preserving polar ice caps. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet. There are plenty of proposed laws and ongoing international negotiations trying to address rapid climate change. But for some kids, the adults are moving way too slowly. What do we want? Stop global warming! When do we want it? Now! Says who? I do! One chronicler of the youth movement to fight climate disruption is Lynn Cherry, author of How We Know What We Know About Climate Change. She's been interviewing young activists and recording them on video to give their voices a broader reach. When kids speak out, it really gets to your heart. I've been showing these. They're just three-and-a-half-minute shorts that we have right now. And people, they get tears in their eyes. They really get choked up because they care about their kids, and the kids are basically fighting for their future. My name is Alec Lures. I'm 13 years old, I'm in 8th grade, and I go to Ventura Charter School. I never knew about climate change at all until I saw Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. Kids are the ones who will be most affected by global warming. By the time we're middle-aged, climate change will be a huge crisis if nothing is done today to help us. So tell me about Alec Lorz. What is he doing to make a difference about climate change? Alec's come up with several projects. One is his SLAP project, Sea Level Awareness Project, and he's been with his group. They've been putting sea level awareness posts all around Ventura, coastal Ventura, to show with each degree of warming where the sea level will be. Alec also has a declaration of independence from fossil fuel. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to rid themselves of an energy system that has been found to threaten their lives and liberties... It is only decent that they should declare the causes of separation from the usage of fossil fuels. It's going to be on the website of the Alliance for Climate Education, and it's a sign-on campaign. So kids all around the world will be able to sign this Declaration of Independence. Now, there are a number of cities and towns around the country who have tried to ban plastic bags. And in Santa Monica, there's a group of kids called Team Marine who took up the issues themselves. And, uh, well, here's a clip from one of them. I myself, as a teenager, using reusable bags at grocery store, I get looked at a lot because I'm a teenager, you know, I mean, teenagers don't really use reusable bags, you know, they're not, it's not cool, but I mean, I think it's cool, and <laughs> definitely uh, everyone can do it. All the comp- so what other ideas do they come up along with, uh, you know, reusable bags to uh, combat the use of plastic bags? And how did they persuade the city to, to impose a ban? Well, Evelina in that same film says that 14 plastic bags is the equivalent of driving one mile. And also, they did research. They actually counted the number of plastic bags that they found on the beach, in trees, along roadsides. It was like collecting scientific data about the effects of trash on the ecosystem. And so they took their 
this data, this study they did, and they presented that. At some point in this, I'm guessing you asked the kids why it is it so hard for adults to get this. The kids think that the adults just don't want to change their ways, but they also realize that a lot of adults are limited by the amount of time they have in their day. And so the kids are taking it upon themselves. One of these kids, Shannon McComb, she says, if you adults won't do something about climate change, then we kids are going to take the reins. That really is their, the sentiment of most of these kids. Some of these kids say, you adults don't have that much time left on this planet. You know, we're very old to them. They think that their whole future is ahead of them, and they really care very much about saving the earth for themselves and for their children. I don't want to sound cynical, but, you know, Typically, teenagers don't much care about the future. I mean, if you tell them that their uh, book report is due next week, they'll say, oh, yeah, and they'll get on the skateboard or head off to the beach. Typically, they're in the nap. Well, I think the reason that kids aren't really doing anything is because they think they can't. The messages that they get from the media is that there's nothing you can do about this. This problem's too big for anyone to solve. But once these kids start doing something, they find that, that action is the antidote to fear and demoralization. And they find that they're succeeding beyond their wildest dreams. There's one girl in the movie, Erica Fernandez, who was actually successful in organizing a thousand people in her community and stopping a liquefied natural gas plant from being built off the coast of Oxnard, California. Being involved and stopping this company, it gave to the youth a lot of confidence. And I personally can say that it gave me the power to believe that I could make a difference. So there's and more to life than the video game. Yeah, I think that these kinds of projects really do give the kids' lives meaning. It's really exciting for them to find that their voices are important. Like in the movie, Alex says, kids have power. Kids can make a difference. Lynn Cherry is an author, illustrator, and environmental activist. Her movie shorts are playing right now at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. And for a link to her new website, you can go to ours, LOE.org. Lynn, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. One danger of climate change is that it may destroy the most cherished features of our home planet, our forests, seashores, glaciers, and snow-capped mountains. Describing the features of the landscape enriches our appreciation and understanding. Learning about the geography that surrounds us connects us. It puts us into context, which is the goal of the book Home Ground, compiled by Barry Lopez and Deborah Gwatney. From time to time, we take note of this miscellany of American landscape descriptions. Today, Pamela Frierson has an historical term from Hawaii, ahupua. Ahupua'a. The most important unit in the ancient Hawaiian system of land division was the ahupua'a, a pie-shaped wedge running from a high point on the island to the coast and some distance out to sea. Since Hawaiian islands tend to have rain-carved valleys originating at central mountains and opening out toward the coast, an ahupua'a often roughly followed the contours of watersheds. The coastal boundaries were marked by an ahu, a heap of piled stones supporting a carved wooden image of a pua'a, or pig, symbol of the tribute paid annually to the paramount chief of the island by the lesser chiefs in charge of each ahupua'a. The commoners within an ahupua'a, living in extended families, held tenancy to small land holdings called ili. 
the Ahupua'a provided the resources to sustain a community. Access to upland forests for timber, lowlands for growing crops, and fishing and gathering along a stretch of coast. This traditional system ended in 1848 when Kamehameha III was persuaded by foreigners to institute the Great Mahele, or division, which allowed land to be bought and sold. In modern times, Ahupua'a holds both the traditional meaning and a broader one of environmentally responsible land use. Writer and photographer Pamela Frierson lives on the slopes of Mauna Kea Volcano on Hawaii Island. Her definition of Ahupua'a comes from the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Guatney. Just ahead, why people miss out on music that's strictly for the birds. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming up, do it yourself, how to build a dinosaur. But first, this note on emerging science from Liz Gross. One, zero, all engine running. Between 1969 and 1972, NASA sent astronauts to the moon six times. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Since then, Earthlings haven't set foot on its surface. But in 2011, a lunar lander plans to apologize for our long absence by bringing flowers. Engineers at Paragon Space Development announced their plans to send a small greenhouse to the moon. At one foot tall and just inches in diameter, the structure has enough room for six mustard seed plants. Paragon hopes to show that a plant can successfully complete its life cycle on the moon. This won't be an easy task. Lunar nights can plummet to 240 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Researchers worry the flowers won't be able to survive the extreme cold. Fortunately, mustard plants grow fast. The whole process from seed to flower takes just two weeks, which happens to be the length of a lunar day. This means the project can be completed before day turns to frigid night. Cold nights are not the only obstacle to this moon garden. The engineers are also concerned with controlling for radiation, ensuring the plants get water, and designing a greenhouse strong enough to withstand the trip through space. They see the experiment as a crucial step towards human existence on the moon's surface, albeit in a biodome. If nothing else, the image of a fragile lunar flower with Earth rising in the background could prompt our curiosity about the moon to blossom once again. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Liz Gross. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. There you'll also find pictures and more information about our stories. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, 
Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. If things had been just a little bit different, we wouldn't ask, why did the chicken cross the road, but why the dinosaur did it? In terms of evolutionary development, dinosaurs are close kin to today's modern birds. In fact, paleontologist Jack Horner says chicken eggs just need a little nudge to bring out the dino DNA. And that's precisely what he proposes doing in his new book, How to Build a Dinosaur. Jack Horner is curator of paleontology at the Museum of the Rockies in Montana, and he's a recipient of a MacArthur Genius Award. Jack Horner joins us from Bozeman. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. It's nice to be here. How to build a dinosaur. Do you think we can go through this interview without talking about Jurassic Park? <laughs> well, I hope so. <laughs> Michael Crichton had a cool idea. You know, I mean, it was, you know, it's an interesting notion that that you could uh, find an insect that had bitten a dinosaur and and sucked its blood out and then, you know, just get the blood out of the insect and uh, get the DNA out. And, you know, that's an interesting it's an interesting idea, and we've been looking for dinosaur DNA in extinct dinosaurs for quite a while now, and we unfortunately, we think that the chances of finding ancient DNA is pretty low. But you say that, that I can build a dinosaur, or, or that you can build one. <laughs> well, yeah, science can build one. First off, it's been established and has been known for quite some time that all birds are a group of theropod dinosaurs. So technically, a bird already is a dinosaur, and you don't really have to do anything to make a dinosaur out of a bird, because they are one. But aesthetically, they really don't look like one, because birds don't have long tails, and of course they don't have teeth, and they have wings instead of hands. There was an interesting discovery, a recent discovery in Canada. They found the smallest dinosaur in North America. It was a meat-eating creature about the size of a, a modern chicken. It ran on two legs, and it was covered in feathers. Did dinosaurs right. have feathers? Well, first off, all dinosaurs were warm-blooded. We have very good evidence that all dinosaurs were warm-blooded, and therefore, either young dinosaurs or small dinosaurs would have required some kind of insulation to keep their warmth in their body. And so feathers is their invention. And a lot of the feathers were probably display feathers as well. We wouldn't find um, feathers on T-Rex, would we? I think we would when T-Rex was small. Oh. When they hatched out of their eggs, yeah. Oh, they're like little fluffy little dinosaurs. Yeah, a little down-covered. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. If You know, if you look at birds, avian dinosaurs, basically every characteristic that we think of as being a bird characteristic was first invented by the extinct dinosaurs. Feathers is one of those characteristics. The wishbone is another. Hollow bones, that's another. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And that's one of the reasons we know that birds, avian dinosaurs, are the descendants of extinct dinosaurs, the non-avian dinosaurs. So T-Rex was closer to an ostrich than an alligator? Yes, absolutely. Crocodiles and alligators are ancient relatives of dinosaurs, but they're not dinosaurs. So the only living animals we have that are living dinosaurs are birds. So the idea is to take a chicken embryo, an egg, and turn it into Chickenosaurus. Right, Chickenosaurus. So it, the first steps into this whole business is, 
is just figuring out which genes need to be flipped on or flipped off and how to do it. So you're not talking about changing the DNA. You're basically no. going to kind of interrupt things in the egg phase. You call it evo-devo or devo-evo. Right. Well, that's, that's what everybody calls it. Evolutionary development is a cool thing, and it's kind of a new science having to do with looking at the development of an animal and, and sort of relating that to its evolution. As we all know, uh, even the embryo of a human being looks very different than a human being when it's developing. A human being, for example, at some point in its, uh, the development of the embryo has a tail, and then a gene kicks on and actually disintegrates that tail. So changes in, um, in the embryonic development can make dramatic changes in the evolution of an animal. Absolutely. That's the cool thing about evolution. And the same thing happens with a bird. A bird uh, begins to form a long tail, which its ancestors had, but then a gene kicks on and disintegrates that long tail. A bird also develops a hand. It starts out with a five-fingered hand, and then a gene kicks on, and, or maybe a complex of genes kicks on, and destroys two of those fingers, leaving it with a three-fingered hand, which is what a typical theropod dinosaur has. And then another gene kicks on and actually fuses those three fingers together to form the end of the wing. And so, you know, the, the book really is about, you know, going in and flipping the switches so that the tail doesn't disintegrate and the three-fingered hand doesn't fuse together to make a wing, but hatches out with a long tail and a three-fingered hand. You know, it seems that as a paleontologist, you have the answer to the to the question: What came first, the, the dinosaur or the egg? In your case, it's <laughs> going to be the that's right. it's going to be the egg. That's right. Well, how close are we to doing this, to building a dinosaur? Well, again, it depends on your definition of the dinosaur. Chickens already are dinosaurs, therefore, we have them already. If you're talking about, you know, how close are we to having a chicken with a long tail? I'd say very close. A chicken with hands instead of wings, very close. But, you know, an animal that looks like a T-Rex, it's a long ways off. So this is really possible? Uh, it certainly is, yes. If we can figure out how we went from dinosaurs to birds, there's no reason, you know, no reason not to go the other way. But, you know, the idea is not just to build a dinosaur. The, the whole idea behind this really is to figure out how to turn genes on and off, to find the right genes to turn on and off. And in the end, you know, Chickenosaurus is a cool idea and it'd be fun, but once we understand how to how and which genes to turn on and off, you know, hopefully we can solve some of our genetic diseases. So if we did build a, a dinosaur, it would taste like chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Paleontologist Jack Horner's new book is How to Build a Dinosaur. And here's a taste of dinosaur music. The sweet melodies of dino-descended songbirds tell us of the passage of time, the break of day, the start of spring, the end of summer. Those same songs tell other birds who's around. Keep out of my territory. I'm looking for a mate. And bird scientists believe our ears miss much of what the songbirds themselves can hear. 
Producer Laurie Sanders visited a birdsong expert in Amherst, Massachusetts, to take a closer listen to some of our most talented songsters, the thrushes. The song of the wood thrush is sung in the dim light of the early morning and in twilight's quiet hours. Its sweet beauty evokes feelings about the purity and peacefulness of wild, untrammeled nature. And those sentiments come to us, even though we're missing most of the song's details. Birds can hear at least four times better in time than we can. Don Krudzma is a world authority on birdsong. Some of these birds, like a wood thrush, when we listen with our unaided ear, we're hearing a little bit of magic, enough that people proclaim this is one of the finest songsters in the world. But when you slow it down and listen to it the way I think the wood thrush itself hears it, it is absolutely mind-boggling. Krudzma says although slowing down a recording changes the pitch and timing, now we can hear the intricate details that our ears would otherwise miss. The first part of the song, I think, is best heard at quarter speed. The last part, I think we need to get down to at least one-eighth speed to hear it. So here goes the way we would hear it at normal speed. Now we go to half speed. Now quarter. This is where I like to listen to the first part especially. And now all the way down to one-eighth speed. To produce these extraordinary songs, songbirds have not one voice box like us, but two. The left voice box produces the lower notes, while the right voice box contributes the higher ones. Kruzma says when a songbird sings, it's using precision breathing, elegantly coordinated puffs of air. Here's another clip from a wood thrush, this time slowed down to one-tenth speed so that we can hear the contributions of the two separate voice boxes. So first here goes that, that left voice box. Now the right. And then the two voices together. And that's just one of the 20 or so songs that a male wood thrush sings. Depending on the species, a songbird may have just a few songs in its repertoire, or it might have hundreds. A brown thrasher has more than 2,000. By recording and analyzing the songs of wood thrushes, Kruzma has discovered that wood thrushes recombine their songs randomly. He can never predict which song a male wood thrush will sing next. That's very different, he says, than the wood thrush's close relative, the hermit thrush. A hermit thrush never chooses its next song at random. There's nothing left to chance in this singing performance because what he does is choose the next song so that it is especially different from the one he just sang. In his mind, he's got these high-pitched songs, he's got the very low-pitched songs, he has the songs in between. And when he sings, for example, one in the mid-range here, almost never would he take a baby step and go to a song on the next pitch. No, he would leap over the next possibility and leap all the way up to the top or leap all the way down to the bottom. All the way up to the top mid-level, all the way to the bottom, up again, 
And that rule extends to when two male hermit thrushes are singing near each other. Each one is listening to what his neighbor is singing. If the neighbor sings high, then he sings low. There really is this exchange going on. They're very mindful, not just that the other bird has sung, but they're mindful of the particular song that that bird has sung and the overall rules by which these females demand that they sing. The discovery of just how much better birds can hear is relatively new, and it's given researchers like Kruzma new insights into the complexity of their songs and the evolutionary forces driving that complexity. These rules of birdsong that Kruzma has studied are some of the first to be discovered, and he expects that many more will be found as researchers slow down and listen in. Now down to... That was half, now quarter. And then one-eighth. Oh, to be a hermit thrush for a day, to hear as they hear. That's the only way we'll really understand what they're doing. Lori Sanders is a naturalist and radio producer. She watches and listens to birds and other wildlife near her home in western Massachusetts. On the next Living on Earth, it's one of the largest pinnipeds and quite a musician, too. You know, walruses are some of the most amazing animals in terms of their acoustics because they can make sounds with all different parts of their body. The claps and bells and whistles of the walrus and why it may be endangered. Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week deep underwater in the Southern Hemisphere. There's nothing wrong with this right whale. At least Roger Payne doesn't think so. But the renowned whale scientist was somewhat perplexed by the sounds made by this lone adult. Roger Payne recorded the whale with a hydrophone at the bottom of the sea near Peninsula Valdez in Argentina. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Ike Shrisk-Kandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Phil DiMartino. And we bid a fond and grateful farewell this week to our interns, Lindsay Breslau, Liz Gross, and Christine Parrish. Good luck and great success. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find this anytime at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life, information at gatesfoundation.org, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing, Pax World for Tomorrow on the web at PaxWorld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.